0: Ready to start your ESG journey? Get going today with social Suite, and you could start reporting publicly in 30 days. With investor pressure mounting and regulations just around the corner, there's never been a better time to start your ESG reporting. Social Suite takes the complexity out of environmental, social, and governance reporting. Social Suite helps organizations to measure, monitor, and report on their progress with fast, simple, and affordable software. Create value through ESG in order to raise capital, improve brand and reputation, as well as mitigate risk. Social Suite has helped almost 100 micro to small cap companies report on ESG, with some starting their baseline report in under 60 minutes and reporting publicly within 30 days. ESG is a lot easier than you think, and you're probably already doing it. So take your sustainability reporting to the next level with measurable progress. Start your ESG journey today with Social Suite, an ESG software company for micro to small caps. Visit SocialSuiteHQ.com. That's social, S U I T E H Q.com, to learn more. My guest on the show today is Michael McCann, president and CEO of Limbok Holdings. It's a publicly traded company. The symbol is LMB on NASDAQ. Limbok is a building systems solutions firm with expertise in the design, prefabrication, installation, management, and maintenance of heating, ventilation, air conditioning, HVAC, mechanical, electrical, plumbing, and controls systems. With over 1,500 team members and 17 offices located throughout the United States, the company partners with institutions with mission-critical infrastructures, such as data centers and healthcare, industrial and light manufacturing, cultural and entertainment, higher education, and life science facilities. Limbach had presented at our virtual conference in December of 2022, and I've interviewed the previous CEO, Charlie Bacon, going back as far as 2016. Also my friend Jerome mark, recently was a guest on Andrew Walker's show yet another value podcast to discuss his thesis about Limbach. As you will hear Limbach despite being around since 1901 went through a strategic shift in their business in 2016 and I wanted to chat with the new CEO on here to share with us his vision for the company moving forward as well as balancing the mix to owner direct relationships from general contractor relationships focus on tertiary markets Capital allocation, specifically regarding their M&A strategy and criteria, and Michael McCann's vision for the company in the next three to five years. With that, please enjoy my conversation with Michael McCann, President and CEO of Limbach Holdings. Mike, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing?
1: Very good, very good. Happy to be on today.
0: Absolutely, it's great to have you on. Um, you know, we were just talking offline. I was saying how you know I've I've known the Limbach story, or I've interviewed you know the previous CEO, Charlie Bacon you know, maybe since 2017, 2018, around that time frame. So it's been a few years that I've you know, been aware and know the story. You know, but what inspired me to invite you guys on today is that uh, you know uh, one colleague and friend of the show, Your Own Neymar, was recently on the yet another value podcast hosted by Andrew Walker, phenomenal show, where he talked about his LMB thesis. So I thought, you know what, Mike's new in town. You know, let's let's get have him on the show to talk more about LMB and and you know where everything is at currently and and where you're looking to go. So to start us off. Can you give us that one line that best describes Limbach Holdings?
1: Sure, sure. So Limbach is a building solutions systems firm uh, with special with expertise in design, engineering, maintenance of particular existing buildings relative to mechanical, electrical, plumbing, and control systems.
0: Very good. Now, let's take a look back at Limbock's history. Not the full history of the company, because uh, from my understanding, the company's been around since uh, 1901, sure. um, but... You know, the, I think it was in 2016 where the main strategic overall happened. So can you briefly describe Limbox, you know, longer history if possible? And then maybe that 2016 pivot and the whole strategic overall, what happened there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a very interesting story. So the company was founded in 1901. It was actually a sheet metal roofing company in Pittsburgh. Um, And then eventually over the court, the family, the Limbock family owned it for a little over 80 years um so most of the time they were a Pittsburgh- based company and then they expanded really in the started in the 50s 60s and 70s and they continued a very very successful company uh, family-owned company and um the ownership changed in the mid 80s uh, with two different owners Venvidian and eventually Enron um and we were uh, picked up by private equity on the early 2000s and that kind of led us to to, your, to the uh, the kind of an inflection point. In 16, we went public through a SPAC. And um, our strategy in 16 um, was to expand the company and primarily to expand what we have, you know, we had done well, which is large construction work and traditional service work, service and maintenance recurring work. Um, that, you know, we had some mixed results um, in 16, 17, 18. And in 19, we kind of ultimately released, released that, um, that inflection point, and um, we thought to ourselves, there's a better way of doing it. There's a different way to go to market. And we really focused ourselves on building owners. And we went from two segments, construction and service, to owner direct, ODR, and GCR, general contractor relationship. And our goal in, in late 19, early 20, was to shift to a 50-50 mix. Previously, the company had been well over 80% construction, which is pretty pretty much in line with the GCR segment. Our goal early 20 was to get to a 50 50 mix um by 2025 and um you know this year we're we're trending towards that 50 50 mix a couple years earlier so it I you know Rich history um and I think in 19 it kind of was that inflection point let's we need to go to Market differently and we need to focus on our niche and what we really are good at so Absolutely.
0: And what would you say that specific niche is? I mean, according to the, the you know, my history knowing the company, and then also this recent interview that owned did, you know, the company's real focus is on HVAC systems. Can you, is that the primary niche and why focus on that one?
1: Yeah. And our, I, I would say our niche is really on the parts and smarts of the existing, you know, and it's trended even more towards existing buildings. Um, we're traditionally have the most expertise in the mechanical HVAC space. Um, And that is usually a primary driver to our overall solutions. The electrical and plumbing and control systems, those ends up being things that kind of get enveloped into an overall solution. Um, But traditionally, our real niche expertise is in the mechanical. Each one of our local markets has a particular expertise too. Um, But I would say it's really about the parts and smarts. What is the big energy consumption of the existing buildings? And how can we do to improve operating costs, uh, building environments, and then uh, the long-term operating spend for customers. That's really kind of the, what's shifted, and really our core focus from a niche perspective.
0: Absolutely. Can you can you also describe the stickiness around the HVAC? Because from my understanding, and some of the few folks I have in the construction uh, space, uh, you know, in my life, um, you know, the HVAC system. I mean that's where most of the electric, uh, is used in, in any, you know, building, whether it's residential commercial. So can you explain why that kind of be, you want to have that as the core focus and then everything kind of latches yeah. on from there? Yep, yep. no,
1: I, um, so the, the, um, the HVC system tends to be a huge energy driver, um, in the, in the existing buildings and, um, you know I think that goes that ties into obviously the control of the systems in the building, the environment. That's why that ends up being such a core piece of what goes on from um and then when you have new construction, the big focus is getting the structure up, um, the aesthetic design of it, the architectural design of it. But once the building is finished, it really comes down, you know, those those interior finishes for the most part are done unless they do renovations. It's more of, of the energy consumption from the mechanical and electrical systems is what kind of drives operating costs, post-construction, and post-once that building's been up. And that's really what we focus on. Our focus, obviously, like I said, is the healthy environments and the energy consumption and kind of ultimately coming up with solutions. Um And sometimes it's something really short. I call it on-demand services. Sometimes it's I need something fixed and it's on-demand. Or the other side of it, too, is long-term, you know, kind of managing their program and their building absolutely so
0: you know along with everything can you also describe the business model in more detail and and you know cuz i think it it goes beyond just you know the installing the commodity stock sure. H- hvac boxes right
1: sure yeah and our our model really with penetrate it's much more long term model um you know, if you ask this, I'd like, say five or six years ago, and, and you'll hear this, I think a lot of people in our space. Well, we have to build a large project. And then once we build a large project, we'll gain the relationship. That's typically how things flow. And I think we were in a position, I think five, six years ago, where we had to kind of make our goal right now is to very much, we want to, our, our goal when we get, when we uh, introduce ourselves ourselves to a new building owner, um, we want to make sure, first off, they're within our six core vertical markets um, healthcare manufacturing life science um, cultural entertainment um, those type of vertical markets and we really call our customers it has to be mission critical they can't afford for their systems to go on operated so that's kind of like before you select a customer it has to fit and we've learned over the years that we have to be super disciplined because if they don't need our services immediately then they're not going to appreciate the services that you know the the value that we offer So that's the initial piece of it. Once we've kind of established what type of customers and we're super disciplined on that, then we want to build competencies. And if we're going to talk to a new customer, we want to make sure that, you know, our first initial discussion with them is what is your most complex issue that nobody can solve? That's what ultimately what we're looking for. Um, We want to solve that issue. We want to build competency over the long-term. And usually that starts with on-demand services, sometimes coming out of a maintenance agreement. Our next goal after that is to make sure that we have people on site every day. We want to embed ourselves into the facility, feel like they absolutely have to, they need us, we've proved competency, and then over time build ourselves into the long-term capital projects that they have. It's really a kind of a trust provide value type relationship, and these can take years. Um and after that, once you've gained their trust and they, you know, they're dependable to you, then they'll give you some information. Once they give you some information and you know, you could call it data, but sometimes it's as simple as information. Utility bills, spend. Then we can start planning their long-term spend. Um, and at that point, we're able to shift with them, whether it's short-term on-demand services or long-term spend, depending on what, what's going on with the life cycle. But the one constant is they absolutely need our services. And the, the other process that we're going through internally, too, and we're constantly evolving. I think that's the common thread amongst all this is, we developed a big customer list over the last five or six years. We have over 1,200 customers. We probably have more than that if I dug even deeper into it. Um, and our goal is to really get down to a core customer group. We ask each one of our locations, and we have about 15 to 17 locations, to um, focus on the top 10 customers, embed yourself in there, um, and spend 80% of your time with those customers. So, you know, the business models evolve but it's about mission-critical accounts. It's about vertical markets. It's about long-term relationships. And really, it's about doubling down and embedding ourselves. And ultimately, we're kind of in this next phase of it, I'd say the next two or three years. After that, once we are embedded, then it's easier to sell them more sophisticated and involved offerings. And that's what's going to drive the margin long-term too. So there's a bunch of different factors to it. And we're constantly evolving to it, but those are kind of the basic principles.
0: Absolutely. And I very much appreciate that answer because it also kind of answers a little bit my next question. And bear with me as I go try and understand this myself. And then you can, and then, you know, add some color to this, you know, because you talked about how there's been this shift from, you know, primarily GCR relationships to the, which is, stands for general contractor contractor relationships yeah. to owner direct relation. I get it. Right. Cause from a general contract to start yes. with the general contractor, they get it. They probably see the value immediately. They're like, okay, cool. But there's a risk factor where like, okay, I now kind of see how Limbock is doing this. Hey, they might, they're doing a really good job. You know, let me just absorb as much as I can and then we'll just get rid of them after a couple of years of getting it. But on the owner direct side, that, you know, you're dealing with mostly owners that aren't GCs that just are like, all right, I got this. I, 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 I don't want to deal with this. Like, you guys just handle this stuff. So, how, add some color there as to the shift yeah. from wanting to go to GCR to this 50-50 ODR-GCR relationship.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's that's kind of a rough way, in a way, to describe it. And so this is <laughs> yeah. the best way I would R- kind of describe it. That, ni- that was nice. Yeah, yeah, I, I appreciate rough. The, the rough way. <laughs> that um, <was> so <laughs> the basic, so an owner is going to, they're going to build a building. And um, they hire a general contractor to manage the process for them. Um, and the owner or the GC, they'll hire an architect and engineer. So if you architect, engineer, and uh, general contractor, all working for the owner, and they're really... They're in like charrette meetings, design meetings, figuring out what the design should be. Their goal is to get to a set of drawings that they can get pricing for. Um, so it's a pre-baked solution. And, you know, their goal Their goal to the owner is to make sure they get the best pricing and they're a steward of the owner. Ultimately, that turns us into a commodity because we're responding to pre-baked solutions. The pre-baked solutions have set scope drawings and we're basically comp- you know competing for them. Occasionally there'll be a project there there's over budget and they'll need ideas, but ultimately those ideas are going to get filtered through the GC to the owner. So we don't have a seat at the table. We saw some really good general contractor relationships, but it's the value can't be delivered right to the source, the end user. It's pretty big solutions. And that's why our margins, that's why currently we're guiding 12 to 15% on the uh, GCR. And that's why those margins are, are, are smaller on the owner direct side. The difference is we're providing uh, our solutions directly to the owner. And a lot of times what happens on the ODR side on our direct relationships is we go and talk to them. What are your problems? And um, it's not like they've got a project in mind half the time. Sometimes they do, but a lot of times they don't. So we'll listen to them, figure out their problems. And a lot of times they're business problems, maybe not specifically mechanical, electrical problems. And we respond back with a solution, a customized solution based on their needs. Um, our job is to also help them how you know, how is this going to get funded? A lot of times they will ask for a return on investment. You know we may not be financing it, but they have to get internal approval of, of the chain. So we're we're giving them a return on investment. We're providing a solution based upon a problem. And ultimately, that kind of drives the higher um, the higher margins. And I, I look at it this way when we're talking to an owner, they're less concerned about gross margins for us. They're more concerned about how it's going to affect the overall performance of their financials, as well as the return on the investment from the long term. It's kind of a different conversation than it is when somebody's asking really to get commodity pricing, and that ultimately drives the differential between the two segments.
0: Absolutely, you know. And then from what you can tell us, you know, you already kind of mentioned how you know the gross margins kind of they you know they tend to stay a little bit lower on the GCR side, and then once we mm-hmm. go to, I mean, how high. In your opinion, can gross margins get over time if you do keep mixing in towards ODR?
1: Yeah, I think because the margin, per, we you know we have I long-term strategy. I always go back to a very simple strategy. It had three parts: shift the mix, evolve the offerings, and acquisition program, which I'm sure we'll get into later. But like the first two, I always say there's there's kind of a two-shot deal on that. It's not just a one-shot. So if we shift the mix, just by naturally shifting the mix. You're going to have an opportunity to increase margins. And, I, and the more we shift our mix to owner direct, the greater opportunity we have in the GCR. So think about the GCR example that I gave you. Their goal is to commoditize. Well, the, there's a couple ways that you can get out of the commodization of it. Uh, I would say three ways. One of the ways is you provide a solution because they are over budget. The second way is the owner tells the general contractor that you're going to use Limbock. And that usually is based on us already being in the building and on campus. And they desire our services so much that kind of skirts the whole procurement process where they feel like I got to have them on this. Mm -hmm. And then the third piece of it is when you don't really need the work. Um, You know, we say no 10 times. They start wondering when, what is the yes going to be that old adage? And um, that in some cases, um, especially when the demand curves high, um, and, you know, the supply is low, that obviously provides us from a margin perspective. So there's opportunity in the general contractor side, and we're going to push this as much as we can. Probably, we think there's an opportunity well past our 12 to 15, but it's it's going to ultimately come in how we mix change. And then the owner direct side, it really comes down to how involved the offerings are. Um, we're really in the early innings of where we are. And, and our goal, as I said before, like next two or three years, we're just trying to embed ourselves in the facilities. So... Um, once we get to step two, which is we are already embedded, we're going to have a lot better opportunity to provide you know, solutions that are ultimately return, tied to return on investment. They're tied to energy savings, operating cost savings. That's going to allow us to have a greater opportunity for margins. And the trust level is developed as well, too. So there's opportunity on both sides. And it's not like we have an ODR segment and the GSAR segment. It's, it's not like the two. We really want the two to work together. The other thing, too, that we're really focused on internally, too, staff-wise is, internal staff, is we don't want you to do a GCR job, even if you can great make a great gross margin return on it, if it's not tied to our vertical markets and it's not tied to our future building relationship. Our goal is to get on a campus and be able to get the full range of work, get all the building owner direct work, and have an opportunity to cherry-pick the best GCR work by the owner telling the GCR. So it's a very much, very a lot of synergy between the two segments and that, that kind of evolves as our building, our relationship with the building owner evolves.
0: Very good. So then let's also talk a little bit about the competitive landscape, right? Like who, who are you competing against for these various jobs? You know, I'd love to learn a little bit more there.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's really changed too. Um, so, and I, I think this will continue to evolve. So um, And it kind of reminds me of where we get comp to. And this is where I always, you know, we have a pie chart in our investor deck that I always go back to. And it really has four segments. It has the specialty contractors, and I'll get into each one of these, the OEMs, um, property managers, and ultimately the energy engineers and ESCOs. And I'll go through each one of them real quick. So the specialties contractors and, you know, public company com- Comfort and core, they provide the traditional services. And traditionally, we've competed against them. Um, but as of time, we've kind of, you know, there's are much bigger companies, you know, 4 billion, 12 billion dollar companies. And we've kind of drifted from the traditional. That model is kind of the model that we had through 16 through 19. We will compete with them, but we won't, we're much more of an account-based focus, less, much less about opportunities. Um, and that's kind of the change that kind of reflects a change. The other, the other side is the energy and escos. We're not necessarily doing a bunch of ESCO deals, but um, you know, our the, the owner will hire an engineering firm, sometimes an ESCO, and their goal is to provide an ultimate solution. they may not have the craft expertise. So we compete with them ultimately when we have craft expertise plus an engineered solution. And it's and um I think even in the future we'll see that even more. Um, the property managers are kind of interesting. Right now we work for property managers, and typically an owner will hire a property manager, and their goal is to um, ha, just No different than a general contractor. Their goal is to kind of take care of all the services Um, and ultimately sometimes will work for them. But we've kind of evolved to that point where sometimes we'll tell the owner, why are you hiring the property manager to do, uh to manage your mechanical and electrical projects? Why don't you keep them on the other level services? You know, the, whatever janitorial lawn services, whatever kind of complete service they have, let us take, um, the mechanical electrical pieces of it. So sometimes we'll compete on that. And then the fourth piece of it is the OEMs train. There's a bunch of public companies train Johnson, Siemens, Aon. I could go on. There's probably Carrier, whole bunch of them. And this is, this is really, I think where the competitive landscape will change for us. And I think over time that will be our main competitor. Um, So here's the scenario that typically happens from an OEMs. They are embedded in a lot of these facilities, But their strategy is really to deliver. They sell equipment and proprietary control systems. Their goal is to get that embedded in the facility and get the pull-through work out of it. Our goal when we compete with them is we don't have proprietary control systems and equipment. We're non-proprietary. We're coming at this from much more of a trusted partner perspective where we can bring in whatever vendors that you need. um, And we're not trying to sell any products or services. So the OEMs do provide sophisticated offerings. And I think that's where a lot of our competitive landscape ultimately would change. But right now, what I would tell you is, um, you know, we're in a lot of these existing buildings. A lot of times they already have a provider, you know, even if we had, so it really becomes kind of like this market share um, battle right now. And, um, you know, there's such demand right now that a lot of the buildings have a provider, but they're not being serviced to the point where they want to be. And they're just not getting people to show up. So. You know, our strategy has been, OK, let's take advantage of the demand curve a little bit differently than everybody else. We're not trying to load up with backlog. What we're doing is there's such demand out there. Let's really focus on a select group of customers. And ultimately, the demand curve will come back a little bit. But we're going to embed ourselves with these customers that they, you know, it's, it's kind of like preparing for, you know, the demand curve to change. Well, everybody's out there hunting large backlog and large projects, we're really focused on our core keep of customers and making sure we get really sticky with them.
0: You know, one question that arises when thinking through this, I mean, you know, when you're thinking about your customer base and who you want to work with, you know, why, why hasn't the company thought, or I'm sure you had this conversation, but do you hmm. have relationships with, you know, building manager, you know, the ones that are kind of more on the management side versus, you know, go also the owner direct side, because I mean, like, I just think about like hotel management, for instance. I mean, not that that might be yeah. more verticals, but like, you know, they, they're very much embedded on making sure everything is running perfectly and all that kind of stuff.
1: There's definitely an ecosystem, no doubt yeah. about that. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, this is what I, you know, some people ask me this question, like, what happens if an owner wants you to take the janitorial services or the long, I'm like, our goal, we're very dis we're gonna to stick to what we do. Just because they want us to do it doesn't mean that we should do it. Um, because that's a short term. That's like check the box. Yeah, we're happy. We got the we're much about the long term. We want to stick within our niche. So there's lots of opportunity within the ecosystem that everybody, you know, works well together. And um, you know, I, I think the other thing too is we're not so brazen that we may be in with a customer and we're trying to get a bigger piece of the pie, but that doesn't mean we want to take such a big bite at once. A lot of times it comes like, like you said, it it could be, um, it could be different building managers and providers that are on the campus. A lot of times it's working together with them. Um, There's so much demand in the space that there's no need to basically just, you know, pile it on um, because ultimately that's a short term, look, we're going to have a tough time delivering. Let's stick with what we do really well.
0: Well, speaking of this, the, you know, you've said a couple of times that there's so much demand right now, you know, especially coming out of covid you know, there's this, you know, kind of, there's this trend out there, right, where, um, you know, commercials kind of going away, people are not, you know, wanting to work from home and all that stuff. Yep. And I know that is, I, I know, I, I'm just curious if when coming out of COVID and you guys talked about how you really want to focus on mission critical projects, you know, looking at healthcare, I mean, these are building, and these are uh, Institutional buildings, so to speak, sure. that require people there, you know, because there is just necessary relationship transactions going on in these types of buildings, you know. So, is that the thought process, even, even especially coming out of COVID? But it sounds like that was also the thought process, even right before COVID.
1: Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. So, I'll probably answer this in a long winded way, but so coming, COVID was an interesting time because COVID happened right when we were trying to shift our strategy and. It's interesting, like commercial, we didn't have a lot of commercial office building work, but that kind of evaporated in 20s. And, um, you know, when we do work for um, higher ed, we're not focused on dorms. We are focused on the science building where they have experiments that have to be performed. So all it did was kind of push us more towards the mission critical um, type facilities where they're there no matter what, they have to be there. So I think that period of 20 really... You know, forced us to shift, and also made us feel like, okay, this is the right strategy. We had to be a little patient with it because the de- the demand was kind of crazy in twenty. Because sometimes they'd have a bunch of money to spend, and then you know the faucet gets turned off. It was just kind of a interesting dynamic. But kind of like where we're at right now is, um, you know, I I view it's like more, much more of. We, we have to make it in, happen internally and our strategies make sure that's not so dependent on, you know, macroeconomic conditions, which want to make sure that our strategy is built on resilience. Not that we're not going to be affected by things that are going to happen, but, um, you know, even what's kind of happened with commercial real estate right now, we're not really in that space where it kind of, again, checks the box. Like, okay, things will happen outside of our control, but if we're in certain buildings, we don't have to, we aren't as affected as, as we are. So, um, you know, budgets. I think for our vertical markets, um, we have those six verticals, and each one of them kind of behave a little bit differently. Um, and that's the, we looked at those six verticals and said to ourselves, like, you know, if healthcare, for example, you know, they've they're still slashing budgets. Um, they haven't recovered coming out of twenty. That's really one of our largest verticals. But eventually, I think there'll be an opportunity. I think even a couple of years down the line, when overall demand in the economy slows down, there's going to be opportunity from a healthcare that they'll invest back in their. Existing buildings. So it's really about, in short, it's like we got those six verticals. We feel like they're going to be in those buildings no matter what. We need enough diversity because the spend may shift between long term and short term, but they still got to spend. And that's kind of the natural progression that's kind of happened from 2000 to 20 now. And the other thing I'll say is we still have a huge customer list. It's not all in those vertical markets. um So we are working hard internally to, you know, if we've gotten a maintenance agreement. And it's a building that's you know not you know not where we want we got some k-12 k-12 through we need to take that agreement and that revenue and we're trying to shift that towards and resources towards um work that's within the six vertical markets so um that's kind of how ultimately a long-winded way of kind of how it's you know we've shifted from 20.
0: got it that was a long-winded that was, that was, <laughs> you explained everything that was that was good so you know, another thing that I that I wanted to ask you about, I think I saw this in in uh, when when your own did the interview with Andrew, was the focus on tertiary or secondary markets rather than major metro cities. You know, I, I think I just saw that that you guys just yeah. exited L.A. So, can you tell us a little bit more and the reasoning behind that?
1: Yeah, so just the L.A. thing. We we right now our focus is east of the Mississippi in Texas, just to make sure that we have you know from executives from a management perspective that we you know, we want to touch all these businesses, whether acquisitions or organic businesses, we just don't buy a company or have an office and they don't see anybody for years. Like we're very much making sure that there's complete synergy and focus and discipline. And we've really learned that. Um, but, you know, it's interesting, you know, that we did an acquisition in, at um, in Chattanooga, Jake Marshall at the end of 2021. And you would think Chattanooga, um, definitely a tertiary market, definitely not a primary market, but um, there's lots of opportunities like that where, um, you know, you can get a player that's the second or largest player in that market and you and you have an opportunity to really own that market because it comes down to local market share. And I think that's kind of the ultimate piece of it is um, it's not that we won't be in the primary markets. It's just sometimes there's an opportunity in the tertiary markets to really own that market share. Um, so it's a balance, though. When you get a tertiary market, though, you may own 50 percent of the market share, but it's not a big market. You know, in the primary market, you may have 5 percent market share, but there's a lot more to be had. So um, to, to us, it's just a matter of the opportunity. So it's 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 not either or it's probably both. Um, but there's some really interesting locations and companies that, you know, you wouldn't think um, are a great opportunity, but they do.
0: Absolutely. You know, you, you brought up acquisitions already about the one that you just did. In, uh, I think you said the end of 2021. So I was going to ask this later, but you know what? Screw it. I'm going to ask you now. So, you know, in your in your opinion, how much capital do you think you can realistically deploy into M&A over the next five years or so?
1: Yeah, our our goal is really, um, you know, we want the business to generate cash. So I'll go through that. So in our old model, when you have large projects, it's just huge cycles you know your cash positive cash it's from a billing cycle ultimately is our kind of our best our model i think we've seen this re- really recently in the last 15 months it's much more a steady cash generation and right now we've been guiding to 70% of adjusted ebs free cash flow um so we look at it you know as we're going to be careful with our acquisitions you know our goal is to do two to three a year. um and right now we have kind of two different varieties of them and there are New geographies, similar to we did the Jake Marshall deal in Chattanooga, and then the other piece of is a tuck-in perspective. So, um, we're still going to be opportunistic. I don't want to say that they're they're you know we won't deviate from that, but we're we're steady and disciplined, and we really think that the business can generate a lot of cash that allows us to fund those acquisitions um, from a normal base case. Um, but you know we've we've only we 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 completed that recent one was the first one we had done in over twenty years. So um, I, I really think, and then you know, we keep that pace up. The business generates cash that should allow us, um, for the most part, to fund the acquisitions that we have. And again, we're still we're still going to be learning as we go too. So if I'm sitting here a year from now or two years from now, we've done four or five acquisitions. Then I think you know we'll continue to look at options, but we want you know. It's all about generating cash. We need the base business to generate cash that allows us to really expand the company. And that to me is our, our core core focus.
0: absolutely. So your background. I mean, like I said at the very top, um you know uh, i've I've interviewed Charlie bacon for many years uh, or, you know uh, across the years, you know, and he recently um retired. I think what was that the end of twenty two?
1: Uh, officially yeah, officially retired in March, late March of 23. Yep.
0: Okay, late March 23. So, you know, love to better understand, you know, the the CEO transition and then as well as your background coming into this.
1: Sure. So I'll start with my background first. So I started with a company in 2010 and I moved from the Northeast and, and, and my started, usual- started
0: not Limbok, obviously. Okay.
1: <laughs> you yeah. You said the company, so a different company. No, no. Yeah. I, 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 I left a company that had worked previously in the mechanical. Uh, and they came here.
0: Got it. Okay. Yeah. And, gotcha, I,
1: gotcha. and I okay. came to Limbok in 2010 and um, my goal was to kind of do organic office start. And then my kind of role every couple of years, I was given a little bit more responsibility um, from branch manager to regional manager to co-COO to COO. So I've, I've been with the company about 14 years my, you know, it's kind of been this natural evolution. I give Charlie a lot of credit for that. Like er, once I built competency, I got a little bit more, built competency a little bit more. So I've been around the business and I, uh, I've seen every aspect of it. Um And and I would tell you that from a, from a strategy perspective is Charlie and I worked really closely together Um in late 19 and 20. We really co-authored the strategy um, that we had going now. So a lot of people ask me, like, what are you going to do differently? I said, the beauty of this is I'm doing what we wanted to do the last two or three years. It's more of an extension of a strategy that Charlie and I built um, more than it is, you know, showing up on April 1st and saying we got a whole new plan. No, it's just evolving the plan that we've already had. And I think that's kind of the testament to the companies and the board and Charlie, of the succession plan. And it's kind of been the same way it's been my career at the company is just kind of Having clear succession and um, g- getting additional responsibilities, so the transitions aren't as dramatic or there's a huge change. And I think that's good for the overall company too. Um, you know, we're evolving a lot as a company. So a lot of people in the company say, "No, that's change." I said, "Yeah, you're probably right, but we are evolving." So I think this um, this transition, I think um the fact that it was planned out and there was good succession really helped i think internally too and kept kept the fuel on the fire too from a evolution of the company strategy perspective very cool all right
0: so i because i asked that to set this up for you because now you know you've been at the home for a few months right. you've done i'm sure a few dog and pony shows now since then <laughs> you know uh, and, so, I mean, and we probably already asked maybe a few of those questions here, but what, what would you say has been some of the more frequently asked questions that you've been getting recently? Or maybe what investors are still getting confused about when thinking about Limbok? I know I've heard various things from, you know, the equity raise in 2021 and what happened there, M&A, and you're, you know, being very disciplined. So I'd love to hear from your perspective what
1: some of that stuff is. Yeah, there's a bunch of different, and, and I really enjoy talking to investors. And I would say that, you know, that the um, I'm always listening. Um, getting input, listening. That's kind of, you know, um, and I I think, you know, that's a key piece of the role going forward too. But I think a couple of things is we're always, why isn't the revenue growing? When is the GCR going to stop contracting? Um, And I was, this is a planned transition. We are, we're guiding towards growth in the owner direct to contraction in the GCR. Um, And there's so much backlog to be had. You have to be super disciplined to make sure that we're following, so the revenue growth is always a question that comes up. Um, we always get compared to Comfort and Mcore, always. You know what they? You know they'll have their transcript, they'll have their earnings, and then people ask us a lot of questions, and they'll ask me questions about those companies, and it's like I, I'm. You have to ask those companies, um, but you know we're really shifting away from them. Those are much larger companies than our, and they're much different strategy. And I'm constantly trying to say that's not really us. Um I think the margin potential just because we're comped versus other company they're thinking that we're we're capped and I'm like well we're early innings here from a margin perspective we are as kind of I explained earlier we're you know we're not as sophisticated with our relationships we're just trying to embed ourselves once you embed yourselves you have a much chance of a win-win where you can where you can increase your margins and lower operating costs so I say those are probably the three biggest ones, the revenue one comes up constantly, though, I would say more than anything. Absolutely.
0: So then, I mean, in your opinion, what what would you say are some of the company's downside risks or some of the risk factors that folks should be aware of?
1: Sure. I mean, we're still a small public company. Um, so I think there's kind of embedded risks in that. Um you know, it, it would happen in 16 and 19 with mixed performance. You know, we're still a contractor. We take risk. But what I'll tell you, too, from a downside perspective is we've seen when things don't shake out the way we want. And that is always in my mind and the management side of it. Um, so we're really we've been really focused from a risk management perspective. Not that we're going to completely dispel all risk. Um, but I will say we've had our fair share of that. And that really drives us every day. Um so, and I think the other thing too, it's maybe not necessarily risk, but we're very disciplined. So there may be a period of time where we don't do an acquisition or, but, um, so I think that's, it's maybe a quite Maybe it's not necessarily downside risk as it is. Why isn't, why aren't things happening as fast? Because we've learned from that period of time, we're going to take our time. Um, and we understand that the risk is in the company. So, um, you know, at, at the question that you asked a little bit before about succession. Um, you know what was nice not just about my role, but the roles that were that worked for me um they were able to kind of progress up as well too, so we have this embedded knowledge of the company, and that I think really helps us from a risk mitigation perspective. It's not like four new people showed up that don't know the 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 um the history of the company, so that really drives us and we're you know for downside, we think downside risk all the time, <laughs> and we're 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 very disciplined
0: absolutely. So then, uh, you know, looking at the other side of the coin, you know, now that you are at the helm, you know, speaking to your own vision, you know, where would you like to see this company in three to five years? And what would you say are those inflection points that'll get you there?
1: Sure. And I go back to our three point strategy. You know, first one is revenue mix. I'd like to push it as much to 70 percent right now. It's 50 50. We'll have to push to 70 percent and beyond. And there's embedded improvement just by shifting the ODR GCR mix. From an ODR 70%, GCR 30%. So we're on a we're on a, a path to shift that mix even further. So that's really, I think in the next two, three, four years, like we haven't put a timeline to that shift, but um really excited about that piece of it. The second piece of it is, is the margins. As I said before, we want to embed ourselves into these facilities, drive solutions. And one of the things that we kind of use internally is um three years from now, if we have a business planning meeting. Are we planning based upon um, past track record record of revenue, gross profit for our customers that will lead to future revenue, gross profit from customers? Um, Kind of our metric internally with our business planning, like if we can have our top 50 customers and we know what they're going to spend the next 100 years, I mean, the next 10 years, then at that point we can plan our work and we know that we're embedded. So it's really about understanding and being a part of the budgeting process for the owner. That will drive that. And then the third piece of his acquisition. So, you know, three years from now, even five years from now, we're going to we're probably barely touched that from an opportunity perspective. There are so many different interesting companies, um, but we've got the southeast market to fill in. We've got a lot of gaps in our geography. I'd love to see some of those gaps filled in. And then I think even from a local market perspective, there isn't a real good market share indicator like some of the other you know, industries. Um, but I love to be picking up a greater share of market for building owners in our space. So really three pieces, shift the mix. I think how, how from a margin perspective, we're planning with a building owner, their spend over a long-term period of time. I know that the rest and the numbers will take care of itself. Then the acquisition side of it is expanding our footprint, um, and then picking up market share. So those are kind of the three or four items that I think to ourselves three years from now, um, where could we be?
0: Absolutely. You know, one last question on the m side, because I think that that's come up quite a bit in, in sure. what I've been looking at, you know, and that, I mean, to your credit, you, you're you now, I think, being labeled as a disciplined, uh, you know, allocator in that sense. You know, so what does, you know, you mentioned, you know, expansion expanding market share you know establishing footprint you know other than those two things what would you say are your core criteria when you're evaluating a potential acquisition
1: number one the management team are they going to stay we want them to in the cultural fit those are absolutely you know because we're going to bet ourselves it's it's very important so we can't have a a culture that's not going to work once you get past that um do they have building owner relationships that were interested? Either it can be an overlap or it could be new relationships. And then the, the fourth piece is, do they have a niche? Um, When you got a niche, you can capitalize on that. Um, If you don't have a niche and you're kind of, you know, servicing a whole bunch of customers, then um, that doesn't help. So those are kind of the four early criterias. I think later criterias is we want to get to know not just the, um, the owner and a couple higher level, we want to get the middle management too. Um, So we want to get to know who they are. It's, 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 it's a disciplined process because it takes us time um, to make sure that, you know, when we encompass somebody into the um, and they, and they join the company that we're really, it's, it's layered through throughout their organization and our organization. And then ultimately I think the last piece of it is, so we've, we learned a lot from the previous years and uh, we have a lot of rigorous risk management side of it. I mean, we're check we're 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 kind of, you know, we're the type of company and this, you know, we want to check the data to make sure that we're constantly looking at things. So that's a big adjustment from a small company that um isn't as rigorous from a financial perspective. So um it's we've kind of learned and I think we learned a lot from the Jake Marshall deal that we really have to make sure that we are it's not going to be a quick deal. We have to make sure we're embedding ourselves. And ultimately, once that deal closes, we really know what we got. And we can um make sure not just the current opportunity, but the future opportunities where we want it to be, too. Because our goal is the owner stays. There's some sort of earn out. And over a two, three year period, we want that owner to win. And we want we want Limbock to win as well.
0: Very good. All right, I think I think I think that we're pretty much there. You've answered all my questions. I mean, is, do, right. in your opinion, do, do we miss anything that that do you, you think better, did we better? We did okay. I think we did all right. <laughs> Good. Well, Mike, with that, where can our audience go and find more information on Limbach?
1: So go to our website limbachinc.com is our our, our best source for information. And um, appreciate everybody listening into the call as well too.
0: Absolutely. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. Really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe. I look forward to our next update.
1: Sounds good. Thank you.
0: Thank you.